I think Bitcoin maximalism is a genuinely like toxic, cancerous thing that harms Bitcoin. And to the extent I can harm that, I'm very happy to do my part. Hey, Bankless Nation, this is a pre-recorded State of the Nation episode. Super excited to talk to Nick Carter. In fact, David, we've already done that. Nick, um, I think people have thought of him as a Bitcoin maximalist mm. in the past, and he recently got lit up by the Bitcoin maximalists and is officially, I might call it, leaving the Bitcoin maximalist religion. Maybe he was never really a part right. in the first place, but people thought he was. And uh, the first part of this episode, we go over that story. Then we touch on some macro themes. We talk a little bit about the bear market. We talk about BlockFi and Celsius and the concept of free uh, banking that Nick has uh, been in favor of in the past. A lot of great insights from Nick in this episode. What were some of your thoughts? Yeah, you'll see the intelligence that Nick brings to the table in the second half of the show. And I think... He always frames these things in like Austrian economics, uh, like free banking, like you said, uh, and like and also the role of gold throughout the world. And then he also has this intrinsic interest in Bitcoin. And so people have associated Nick Carter as being like, okay, when he talks about global macro politics, when he talks about Austrian economics, it's coming from the place of a Bitcoiner. When actually the mistake that was a mistake, it was actually coming from the place of Nick Carter. Uh, and so people have like thought of Nick Carter as Nick Carter the Bitcoiner or Nick Carter the Bitcoin maximalist. When in re again, in reality, is just Nick Carter. Uh, and so Nick, when uh, Nick and his uh, VC fund Castle Island announces this investment in like this Web three wallet with identity verification with a wallet based sign in, uh, the the Bitcoiners are like uh, the 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 cyber hornets, if you will, come and descend upon him uh, just by this association that this super super smart guy who also likes Bitcoin, therefore is a Bitcoin maximalist, turns out to not be true. The Bitcoin culture descends. But like, it's one story to talk about this as just like this was what was going on on like the crypto Twitter meal you during the bear market. But the more interesting thing is about the way that Bitcoin works as a narrative. And this is where we conclude that conversation, where there's a relationship between Bitcoin, the code, and the culture that arises on top of it, and what how the asset actually manifests in real life. And I think it's if you can extrapolate it, the listener, extrapolate it to the tribe that you're probably in, depending on what your chain you're on, or the token that you like, depending on what DeFi app that you enjoy the most. You could also find all of these truths in whatever organization that you find yourself a part of. So it's one part a story of the hap what happened on crypto Twitter recently, but it's also something else that you can extrapolate into the wider world of crypto, because that's how this thing operates. And then we get yeah. into Nick's very well-informed thoughts about the macro world, uh, this coming decade. How is this bear market the same? How is it mostly different? Uh, and like what he's doing about it. Yeah, I think this is a story of tribalism. It's also a story of Bitcoin. So if you're really interested in, in learning more about Bitcoin culture as it is in 2022, there's no one that understands it better than Nick Carter. I mean, he's kind of a, a historian mm -hmm. of the Bitcoin culture world, and he's been in the trenches as well. So a uh, fantastic episode coming up for you. Uh, we also wanted to tell you about our friends at Juno. Juno is a crypto-friendly banking app. You can open a checking account on Juno. It's funny about this is you're hearing from Bankless. We're telling you, you should go open a bank account, but that's exactly <laughs> what you should do because Juno is a DeFi friendly, a crypto friendly bank account. They even allow you to exit 
your funds to layer two That's directly. Crazy. Does your Wells Fargo account do that? Does your Bank of America account do that? No, you need a bank account that is crypto friendly for the 21st century. And I think all creative uh, crypto natives need something like Juno in their lives. David, what more would you say about Juno? Yeah, not only does your Wells Fargo not give let you like go on to an Ethereum layer two straight from your checking account to a layer two in seconds. That's crazy. Also, 6% on your USDC. Ryan, what percentage are you getting in your Wells Fargo account? Uh, well, sir, I'm making uh, 0.01% in my Wells Fargo savings account at the moment. Those are different numbers. Uh, you can also get <laughs> Ether and BTC clocking in at 3% as well. Uh, and they also have a, a MasterCard debit card that's metal because everyone likes the metal cards these days. Uh, and so if you sign up with Juno and you make your crypto deposit into your crypto side of the on Juno account, they'll give you $10. If you make a direct deposit into Juno on the checking side of your Juno account, they'll give you $100. And then what you do is you send that $100 over to the crypto side, straight to a layer two of your choice. Optimism, Arbitrum, Polygon, CK uh, Sync is coming, and StarkNet is also coming. You can sign up, there's a link in the show notes, juno.finance slash bankless. And that's if you set up direct deposit, which is super cool. That means you receive your paycheck partially in crypto, mm -hmm. which is pretty awesome. So go ahead and check that out. David, gotta ask you the question before you get into the next episode. What is the state of the nation today, sir? This one's a weird run, Ryan. <laughs> this week, the, the state of the nation, we are inoculating. Because you know, when, when bees sting you, they sting you with poison, but then you become resistant, right? When you take the poison, you actually become more and more resistant to it. So Nick Carter is getting inoculated from the cyber hornets. But also, going into the bear market, we are becoming inoculated from the drugs that is a bear, from a bull market. The bull market mania, the, bear, the bull market euphoria. So we're going through the bear market. It's going to be tough. Nick's going to kind of lay it out, like how tough it's actually going to be. But then once we emerge around on the other side of it, we shall be inoculated from the bear market. That's how these things work. How'd you like that one? <laughs> I, I like that. Re resistant to, um, I think, some of the, I guess, falsehoods mm -hmm. that are put forward. Because everything gets tested during a bear market, yes. including our conviction and our resolve. Mm -hmm. And we end up on the other side more inoculated, stronger. Uh, and that is the story here. So guys, we're going to get right to our episode with Nick Carter. But before we do, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. There is a brand new staking feature in the Ledger Live app today. We all like staking the assets that we're bullish on, and now you can stake seven different coins inside the Ledger Live app. Cosmos, Polkadot, Tron, Algorand, Tezos, Solana, and of course, Ethereum. With Ledger Live, you can take money from your bank account, buy your most bullish crypto asset, and stake that asset to its network, all inside the Ledger Live app. Through a partnership with Figment, Ledger also lets you choose which validator you want to stake your assets with. And Ledger is running its own validating nodes, offering a convenient way to participate in network validation, and it even comes with slashing insurance. Ledger Live is truly becoming the battle station for the bankless world, so go download Ledger Live. If you have a ledger already, you probably already have it and get started securely staking your crypto assets. The Brave browser is the user-first browser for the Web3 internet, with over 60 million monthly active users. And inside the Brave browser, you'll find the Brave wallet, the secure multi-chain crypto wallet built right into the browser. Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy, but there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. And most crypto wallets are browser extensions, which can easily be spoofed. But the Brave wallet is different. No extensions are required, which gives Brave browser an extra level of security versus other wallets. Brave wallet is your secure passport for the possibilities of Web3, and supports multiple chains, including Ethereum and Solana. You can even buy crypto directly inside the wallet with Ramp. And of course, you can store, send, and swap your crypto assets, manage your NFTs, and connect to other wallets and DeFi apps. So whether you're new to crypto or you're a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions, and it's time to switch to the Brave wallet. Download Brave at brave.com bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. 
Arbitrum is an Ethereum layer two scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. Some of the coolest new NFT collections have chosen Arbitrum as their home, while DeFi protocols continue to see increased liquidity and usage. You can now bridge straight into Arbitrum for more than 10 different exchanges, including Binance, FTX, Huobi, and Crypto.com. Once on Arbitrum, you'll enjoy fast transactions with cheap fees, allowing you to explore new frontiers of the crypto universe. New to Arbitrum, for a limited time, you can get Arbitrum NFTs designed by the famous artists Ratwell and Sugoi for joining the Arbitrum Odyssey. The Odyssey is an eight week long event where you complete on-chain activities and receive a free NFT as a reward. Find out more by visiting the Discord at discord.gg Arbitrum. You can also bridge your assets to Arbitrum at bridge.arbitrum.io and access all of Arbitrum's apps at portal.arbitrum.one in order to experience DeFi and NFTs the way it was always meant to be, fast, cheap, secure, and friction free. Hey, Bankless Nation, wanted to introduce our next guest. This is Nick Carter. He's a partner of Castle Island VC, host of On the Brink podcast, repeat bankless guest, and also the recent victim of a Bitcoin maximalist attack on Twitter. And I think, Nick, we're going to start right there. But uh, how you doing, man? You surviving out there? I made it. You know, I, the cyber hornets, they gave me the best they had. You know, they swarmed. <laughs> I beat them off. I jumped into a nearby pond. You know, I think they lost interest. You swatted them away. And I read your um, <laughs> post that you wrote earlier this week about kind of like the death of Bitcoin maximalism and set some of the context for this. But like um, David is the one who always calls them cyber hornets. Mm -hmm. David, why do you call Bitcoin maximalists cyber hornets? Can you give people context for that term? Uh, that, that term just kind of emergently was discovered, uh, but it definitely is emblematic of uh, an organization of people that emergently coordinate without any like there's just this emergent coordination of these cyber hornets like they descend upon you uh, they there's no like central actor there's no central leader and they all like kind of move together uh, and when something kicks the hornet's nest like the cyber hornets make themselves known uh, and so <laughs> Nick accidentally I guess kicked the cyber hornet's nest. Uh, and fell victim to a cyber hornet <laughs> attack. Uh, Nick, you, you look okay. You look pretty good. Uh, can you talk I about mean, like I, what? What did you do that pissed off the cyber hornet's nest? I'm laughing because it's just so stupid. It's so <laughs> stupid. Yeah, I mean, most of the people that actually some of the like stalwart like old time Bitcoin hardliners also piled on, which is disappointing because like I considered some of them friends, and it's like. I would go and do in their podcast. So it's basically putting money in their pocket, um, you know, going to their events, speaking at their events, like doing things for them, right? For five years, right? Since I've been a full-time, you know, person in this industry. And so to see them turn on me over something so just completely stupid is like really disappointing, but also it just reveals who has character and who doesn't, right? And at the same time, I've had so many people reach out to me, like, thank you for saying that. I, you know have experienced the same kind of struggles. And um, I think this is opening a lot more doors than it closes, frankly. So just to catch everyone up, not that I assume everybody's like following like, you know, the tiny details <laughs> of my like arguments on Twitter. Uh, it started when we announced investment in Dynamic, which is a Web3 um, wallet-based sign-on authentication startup, uh, which I actually think is a great, awesome use case. Like I think that's the, one of the killer apps for Web3. Um, and I was like out and about, um, I don't know what I was doing, but I looked back at the tweet, which is just like a normal, I think I was buying shoes. Actually, I was buying some pair of loafers, um, blue Scarpa. It's a really cool Miami brand. 
Shout out Blue Scarpa. <laughs> um, and I came back and there was like a hundred replies on the tweet. People were like, wow, don't Samson Mao replied. He's like, you shouldn't be proud of this. The, the tweet like, of you announcing that you were participated in this like funding round. The Castle Island investment. Yeah. yeah. People mm-hmm. were going crazy. It's like, well, this is like, I announce all the deals we do. Why didn't you have a problem with any of the other 50 deals? And so basically a whole bunch of Bitcoiners piled on. It's like mostly the class of 2021, the newer guys, you know, maybe they stacked uh, a few sats here and there. And they like, they probably just didn't know a lot about me. They probably didn't know anything about Castle Island. And so they'd sort of maybe read some of my stuff. They kind of assumed I was a maximalist and then I just wasn't. And uh, the whole thing gave them whiplash and then they freaked out and took it as their opportunity to just, you know, try and sort of paint me as like a, you know, apostate or like a Bitcoin defector or like, uh, you know, like a scam artist or something. Even though, like, as you guys know, what we do mostly as a fund is we invest in in startup equity. So I'm not really shilling anything to anyone. I'm just announcing that we invested in a startup. Like Dynamic doesn't even have a token, right? No, no token. They have like a traditional business model. Uh, They're doing something great. doesn't require a token, obviously uses blockchains. It's not built on Bitcoin. I know it's heretical. Um, but, but it's, it's really it's, cool. it's like it's Web three like kind of um, you know private key um, user authorization decentralized ID similar to like the the Jack Dorsey project that was um, recently announced in some ways. Completely conceptually, I would say very similar. I think they're more of DID direction. We don't really know what what they're doing really. Um, but yeah, I, like the idea is to restore user power of the internet to get rid of these centralized authentication services. That, you know. I think that's a great thing, right? We probably should definitely move away from the world where Apple and Google and whatnot uh, own your identity, right? And move to a, a model where you sort of secure cryptographic information, use that to log into things. I mean, anybody that's ever logged into anything with MetaMask before knows that this is way, way better. And uh, it, it creates a more resilient internet uh, and just a better experience for everyone. Funny so, to me, th- yeah. this is not even like... Um, uh, this is not even competitive in any way, shape, or form to Bitcoin. Not at all. It's complementary, maybe, but it's not even in the realm of, like, it's not a separate blockchain. It's not a separate asset that you buy. It, no. It can't be uh, in competition with Bitcoin, like, in any way, even, like, just given the nature of the product and what the thing is. Yeah, it, not not remotely similar from a categorical perspective, so... Um, it's really just, um, actually I would say like the laser eye sort of toxie maxi people have kind of been after me for a while. And I think they seized on this. They noticed, I mean, people were angry first of all, cause just, they lost money. And then they sort of thought this would be a great issue to like use to try and discredit me and be like, Nick's not a real Bitcoiner or something, which is fine. Like if I don't want to be part of whatever they are, right. These people are like basically lunatics. Um, and I'll be what I am, which is not like them. I think a, a decent amount of uh, Bankless listeners and, and viewers, this is a world that they actually aren't very much exposed to. Can, can you put us into the mind of a Cyber Hornet or a Bitcoin Maxi? Like, what's their motivation for doing this? Like, why, why do they participate in this sort of just like crypto cancel culture around in order to protect Bitcoin? Why do they, why, what, what are they up to? Yeah, so well, a lot of people like to. A lot of them see it as their higher purpose, right? Like they believe that they're actually defenders of the protocol or something. A, a lot of these ideas are holdovers from maybe like the UASF wars back in 2017, where we had the big block wars and the small block faction won. And uh, for, that's at least the you know being charitable here. That there's a segment of the cyber hornets that are these guys that have been around for a few years. 
um, and they you know think their Bitcoin's immune system, they're protecting Bitcoin. To be clear, I'm not trying to change Bitcoin in any way. I love Bitcoin. Bitcoin's great. Um, so whatever the immune system is doing, it's misfiring, right? Um, so there's one cohort that does that. They think, oh, we can't uh, consider or contemplate any changes or revisions to Bitcoin or any departure from sort of the ordained path. And that's sort of a, a, like a bad thing, I would say, because it leads to total intellectual stagnation. And, you know, it, it means that actually altering Bitcoin in any way is virtually impossible. I think it's too difficult. There's probably a balance, but I think it's too difficult. Then there's sort of like the whole, like the people, the, like the cyber hornet, like the toximaxis, whatever. A lot of these people are really new. They're new to the industry. They came in in 2020, 2021. Um, they're not like OGs with tons and tons of Bitcoin. A lot of these people are pretty brand new. So maybe they kind of knew how it was a little bit, but I'm actually not shocked that they didn't know about Castle Island. They didn't know about my views. They didn't know anything about me because they're newcomers, right? Uh, and they like to just like post memes and like they like to be part of this Bitcoin culture, which goes beyond just um, the asset itself, right? It's about ascetism. It's about like uh, deprivation, privation, right? It's about um, stacking Bitcoin at the exclusion of other kind of earthly pleasures. It's certainly about uh, considering Bitcoin the only moral asset to hold to the exclusion of everything else. So certainly other L1s, other blockchain tokens. And this ideology, which is quasi-religious, actually, if you really look into it, uh, it's got an eschat I don't know how to pronounce this, eschatology. There's an eschatological component, which is whatever. I don't know how to pronounce that. I've only ever read the word. Okay, give me a break. So there's a component which is like basically has to do with the like final judgment, like looking forward into the future. It's the view that everything else in crypto is like Sodom and Gomorrah and it's like sinful. And there'll come a day where the hellfire rains down and all of the other liquidity, everything good and, you know, sort of like worth saving out there and like uh, the sinful Sodom and Gomorrah land is going to sort of like collapse back to Bitcoin. Like, just you wait. One day it'll all come back to Bitcoin. Like, we'll build it all on liquid. And that is what allows them to tolerate the reality, the ugly reality, which they can't tolerate, which is there's a lot of innovation, like actual, real, economic, genuine, important stuff happening elsewhere. In fact, the vast, 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 vast majority of all economic activity in crypto does not happen on Bitcoin, as we all know. And so they need to observe this reality. They can't help but observe it. And they need to justify it somehow. And so for them, they rely on this like Judgment Day ideology where uh, eventually, you know, some catalyst, I don't know whether it's Gary Gensler, like destroying Ethereum or, uh, you know, something else means that everything will come back to Bitcoin. All the innovation will be built on Bitcoin. And that's just, you know, like a completely delusional thing, right? Um, but that's part of the ideology. And then, of course, there's the idea that, you know, the asset issuance has to be completely perfect, uh, completely um, free of orig original sin, right? So, like, I'm using religious words, but that's because this is a secular religion, right? It is a secular religion. Um, if the issuance isn't perfect with the proof of work, uh, and look, you can hold me responsible for uh, expressing some of these ideas historically. I have. If the issuance wasn't absolutely perfect with, you know, the founder... You know, being Satoshi, being this like a, a unhumanly, inhumanly altruistic entity, superhuman Promethean entity, if it wasn't perfect with the proof of work and with the miners not having advantage and like no ICO, no pre-mine, whatever, then the uh, 
the whole coin is tainted forever, thanks to the original sin. There's no absolution possibility. There's no ability to, you know, <laughs> get past the sin and to be, you know, rechristened, brought back into the light. That's not possible. And so Bitcoiners also hold that Ethereum is inherently sinful because of the, the launch structure. Uh, and so that's the ideology. Uh, beyond that, there's like a cultural factor where people sink their whole lives into this thing. Look, I'm the last person to uh, really be had to have a moral high ground there because I'm sort of all in. But, you know, they do the like Dilliners and they do like the Seyfedean and like the book readings and like the, it, it becomes an obsession, becomes all consuming, it becomes much more than a financial position. And so um, they can't tolerate, you know, they can't handle um, like the selling off because that like they can't handle these models being invalidated, right? They can't handle the stock to flow model being like discredited. So because they're all in, it's so much more painful when it sells off, which it has done recently, because it's not just they lost money, but their credibility right. is selling off too, right? And their self-worth. And so that's sort of like what it's like to be a cyber hornet. It's not a pleasant existence. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sad existence. You're just buzzing around and you're going and finding victims to sting all the time. Um, but, but let me ask you, so you mentioned a cohort from like, you know, 2020, 2021, 2022, but there are actually some kind of like more OGs, Bitcoin hardliners that are part of this cyber hornet attack too. Um, is that the case as well, that there are like Bitcoiners that have been maximalists for years and years that kind of are the de facto leaders of, of these hornets? What can you say about the people that have been in crypto and in, in Bitcoin for, for a while, or, or there's some of those that you found as, as part of the, the group attacking? Yeah, of course. So, look, I mean, a lot of friends, uh, people I considered friends, just completely turned on me. Um, that's fine. That's their prerogative. They can do whatever we want. It's actually really funny within, like, the the pleb space. Like, there are a lot of people where I've gone out of my way to, like, help get these people into the industry. They cold DM me, you know, I would do a call with these people, give them advice, and then I turn around, you know, a couple of years go by, and then, like, you see them calling me, like, a scammer and stuff. And it's like... You, like, should we, like, you remember what I, what you DM'd me, like, years ago? And, well, why uh, do they do that? Do, do you think this is, like, just a human group kind of mentality where the, the hardliners have to be in a position where they kind of attack the the more moderate factions in order to, I, I don't know, achieve some sort of uh, social end or, uh, you know? As, as a political group radicalizes, it always purges the moderates. And, right. uh, you know, no one can you break ranks. find unison. Yeah, yeah. correct. You can't, so, you can't like, show weakness. You always punish the um, people engaging in apostasy the hardest. Like the outsiders, you just hate them because they're the outsiders. But man, the insiders that waver, oh, you know, they really suck, right? Because you, you can't tolerate any defection because like that could trigger more defections. Right. Um, so the, the like longtime Bitcoiners that like turned on me that I, you know, considered friends or whatever, I think that's actually just very cynical and opportunistic. They know what my fund does. They know me, right? Like, I don't just invest in Bitcoin. If you're like, if you've been around for the last five years of my career, it's, I haven't been quiet about it. Um, you know what I do. And uh, so why did they, why are they like leading the hordes here? Uh, it's very simple. They think Bitcoin um, is content. Like a lot of them are content creators, right? They're like quote unquote educators. They think it's a zero sum game. And if one educator is rising, another must be falling. And I do the education and stuff on the side. It's not my job. I don't really make any money from it, right? My job is my job, right? Um, they want 
to secure more like space. They want to secure more market share, more attention. And so of course the great opportunity to be like, wow, we can discredit this guy. We can like paint him as a shit coiner and then no Bitcoiners are ever going to listen to him, whatever. Like the unfortunate thing for them is that, you know, distancing myself from the Toxie Maxis is one of, is the best thing I've ever done actually. And it's making me much more credible. And, um, and, and it's opening a lot of doors actually. And it's my star will continue to rise here. That's the problem for them. So by attempting to like come to get, like their camp is getting smaller and less relevant. And, you know, having defections like me from that camp is really, really going to hurt them. Right. Cause like, there's not that many people that are sort of like thoughtful and, and like more balanced about this within the Bitcoin camp. There's very few remaining, right? Like Hasu left, Eric Wall left. Um, you know, like, like thoughtful, uh, Udi, obviously high profile defector, like the more of these that happen myself now, there's not that many people that I consider like super, like actually thoughtful, sensible, understands finance deeply, realistic, is interested in real objective reality as opposed to just delusional myths. Like I still have a few friends like that. Um, but it's more like the fingers of one hand. So the more defections there are, the the more radical and niche and basically irrelevant the like hardliner crew becomes. You know, this whole like culture of like Bitcoin maximalism reminds me of this old like um, joke from like World War II. I'm gonna like butcher it, so I'm gonna like speed run it. But it's uh, like uh, like there's a so somebody dies in World War II and, and for some reason they get sent to hell. And there's three like pits of just like pitch and like the devil showing this guy around and be like, well, here's the, here's the American, here's where we put the, the pit that we put the Americans. And like, there's a bunch of Americans in this very hot, like pitch. Uh, and like the, there's devils, like mini devils, like pushing, pitchforking the Americans back into the pitch. Uh, and then he shows them to the, the second pitch. Uh, and then it's the British and it's even hotter for some reason, whoever wrote this, this pit, this story, <laughs> this joke says that the, 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 the British pitch is even hotter and there's even more devils pushing people back in. And then they turn to the Russian pitch where all the Russian like communists are and it's the hottest one alive and the, but there aren't any like devils on the edge of this one pushing people back in so whenever and whenever any one Russian tries to escape the the pitch of, of communist hell the other Russians just pull them back in right it's like no no you can't leave and it, this just very as much reminiscent on just like Bitcoin maximalist don't break the ranks because if you do we will pull you back in and you will never leave and, and like something that fascinates me about the world of crypto is like the thing that I get compelled to the most is like this relationship between code and culture, as in the code of something works its way up and starts to define the culture that's on top of it. And like the Ethereum critique uh, of like Bitcoin itself is that so much of it is in a story form. So much of it is in like meme form where like you have to believe the story of Bitcoin to really see its purpose in the world. And as a result of that, I think that kind of incentivizes this like maximalist culture who like not only do they believe the story, but they're enforcing the story and they're enforcing the story by like, if you break ranks, we will shun you. You are either 100% a Bitcoin maximalist or you're not a Bitcoiner at all. Does this, does this kind of like, like story resonate with you, Nick? Yeah, you're spot on. Uh, it's crabs in a bucket. Um, the problem is that the like testable claims that these people rely on are like they're basically false or they're invalidated or they're trending towards invalidation. Now, look, I'm not going to sit here and be like super negative on Bitcoin. I am still positive on it. I think it's great. 
I'm not approaching it from the framework of the maximalists, right? You don't have to. Most people worldwide don't, right? Um, I'm extricating myself from that. But yeah, if the sort of like core, um, like more testable empirical beliefs about Bitcoin that they relied on are there, it's just like a graveyard of falsehoods. So look at the stock to flow model. They all believed it. Now they're going to, now that it's basically like really hard to believe. I mean, it's not like you can't invalidate it or not. It's just like dots moving around on like a, you know, like chart. So it's the, the creator of the model never allowed it to be invalidated. So it's just whatever. It's a bad model, but so that model is like basically clearly off base now. Virtually every single hardcore like Bitcoin maximalist, every Bitcoin educator, they believed this thing. There was virtually no one that didn't. The people that spoke out about it were like the more moderates, like me or Paul Stortz, um, like uh, people with sort of more economics training. Um, you know, you're not going to find a lot of the like people that you think of like, as like the key hardliner Bitcoiners that were speaking out against this model. They were all like, oh, well, what if it's true? And it was like a very seductive thing that pulled in a lot of people into Bitcoin. Those people are very angry now, by the way. If you want to, you want an explanation for why people are so mad? It's because they really believed in this thing. Um, so that thing is false. Like the halvings is obviously related. Basically every single hardcore like Bitcoiner believed in the halving thing, which is like one of the stupidest things imaginable, man. Like <laughs> you're going from 1.8% inflation issuance to 0.9%. That's a, su a tiny supply side modulation. Um, demand is what matters here, guys. Demand not supply, the supply dynamics are known, right? It's like, it's not even econ 101. It's just like rationality and like logic 101. Um, so that, you know, the having is basically invalidated. Um, I would say, what else? The, um, the theory that everything would just be built on Bitcoin, that the, the side chains theory, obviously just like not happening, right? Um, Stable coins were on Bitcoin, then they left. NFTs were on Bitcoin, then they left, right? So any theory of utility along those lines didn't work. The theory that like Ethereum would collapse under its weight, it's just like that thing has momentum. Like it's just a denial of reality to think the thing's just going to, you know, not exist anymore. Um, so like the idea that everything interesting, all the altcoin tech is going to be built on Bitcoin. None of that happened, right? It wouldn't make sense. Like Bitcoin is a specific thing. You don't want it to like, you know, you don't want to do all the altcoins on Bitcoin. Why would you? Um, so like all these beliefs are just trending in the wrong direction. What, what's interesting here, Nick, is uh, you mentioned sort of the uh, the extremists push out the, the moderates, right? I, I actually consider myself a moderate Bitcoiner. Right, like I, I hold Bitcoin. I'm, I'm inherently bullish on Bitcoin's future, but I have um, felt very much, like not recently, but um, in in years past, kind of pushed out by that community of of hardliners. Right, so much so that um, it feels weird to call myself a Bitcoiner, even though what is a Bitcoiner? Someone who owns Bitcoin, someone who believes in in the potential of this decentralized technology. But there was a time, Nick, where I would talk to you, Bitcoiners, more hardline people. Bitcoin maximalist. I, I even remember conversations with Hasu, you know, back in like 2018 or, or 2019 or so, where um, the point would be made that, hey, this intolerant minority is actually good for uh, an asset like Bitcoin. And other communities should actually strive to recruit this intolerant minority 
of hardliners. And part of the reason I may be bearish on a community like Ethereum is because there, are, there isn't this intolerant minority of hardline Ethereum people who are very excited about the number go up of, of Ether, the asset, and all of these other things. And particularly in like 2019, Ethereum had none of that. It didn't even have anything reminiscent of a hardline community who even thought the asset was valuable. Um, right. So what do you say about this? Do you think this intolerant minority is kind of a, an, an asset to Bitcoin in some ways? Or are, are you increasingly viewing it as a, as a liability for the community? I would say it's actually like the structure, but like people kind of give too much credit to the people on Twitter during like the four cores and too little credit to just like the nature of Bitcoin. Um, you know, like uh, I would say Bitcoin itself, just by virtue of the soft fork model, is hard to change. And uh, that probably did a lot more to protect it than like people wearing user activated soft fork hats or, you know, um, no 2x hats or anything like that. Bitcoin just has a lot of inertia just by virtue of the way it is and the way it's set up and the fact that you just sort of opt into new upgrades. Um, so like something all, like the laser eyes, is that is this helpful to Bitcoin or not? Irrelevant, I would say. Irrelevant. Um, the people that like fought the, the last war five years ago, you know, which was sort of like the really big battle, those people are like barely even active, right? They're not like still holding the line. So... That intolerant minority, like I wouldn't even say it exists today. Um, you have a different set of people for the most part. It's pretty different, which sort of like is doing a cargo cult of that, right? Instead of looking at Bitcoin's underlying principles and the values that the protocol enshrines and trying to uphold those principles, they're just sort of like doing the very surface level thing, which is yelling at people on the internet. Like they don't have any like real appreciation for the like actual underlying values here. It's more like, oh, yeah, we can, uh, you know, get a dopamine rush by attacking people online because that's what our uh, predecessors did, you know, in the, in the wars of yore. <laughs> uh, so they're just like cargo culting like previous battles, um, which I get. It's, there's like not like big wars to be fought every day. So they're bored. And it's like Civil War reenactments, basically. It's not the real thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> there's no like uh, bullets in the muskets. Um, so, yeah, yeah. If you want to like really defend Bitcoin, then I think you have to start from like the actual true like principles uh, and 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 you know work upwards from there. And I would say with the with Ethereum, like you guys do have, um, you know, uh, ideas and underlying uh, you know components that you want to uphold and you want to prioritize. Um, so I would say like that definitely exists. You know, like the idea of uh, making Ether valuable in its own right, that was then like expressed into a bunch of design decisions and things like that. Um, e you know, even the striking the balance between sort of like the aggressive pace of innovation versus the required uh, slowness in terms of uh, making sure you're not breaking anything. Ethereum has a different cadence compared to like some of its more aggressive competitors, right? Um, you know, so like it's definitely got its own set of um, like core values, I would say. Um, now, w w whether it's sort of occupying the right location on the continuum, I couldn't tell you. Um, I'm still, like, I still favor a very slow, deliberate approach. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't think, you know, the, like, intolerant minority is doing much of anything uh, on Bitcoin these days. During this middle of this uh, cyber hornet attack, I noticed you had uh, the .eth in your name, the Nick Carter .eth. Do you, do you own Nick Carter .eth? 
No, please do not send funds to that address. <laughs> was that just a troll? Nick. Sorry. I was just trolling people. I thought it was funny. You're like, okay, it's like, oh, you're being attacked. It's like, whatever. I, I, like, I can still laugh about it and still make fun of these people. I'm piss. I piss them off more. Whatever. Did, I don't care. Like, it, I don't. I don't need these people for anything, right? I'm, they're not coming to me for investment. These are not the founders that I invest in. Mm-hmm. These are certainly not the people that invest in my fund. <laughs> Tell you that. Nick, um, Nick I keep waiting for so. Bitcoin maximalism to die, though. Is it going to die? I, Is it this dead could already? Be it. I'm not going <laughs> to. could be it. I'm not going to. You know be like so presumptuous as to think that I killed it but man this has got to fucking hurt you know there's not that many defectors left yeah to be clear I was never a maximalist though I never self-identified that way Right, but people across like the Ethereum ecosystem, like uh, there's like a number of, of group chats that I in the Ethereum ecosystem. I was like, oh wow, go look at Nick Carter getting attacked by the Bitcoin maxis. Like they're eating their own at the moment. But like I don't really think, uh, like, you're 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 not a, a Bitcoin maximalist. You are Nick Carter, right? You're a free thinker, and I think like and we we've seen like Hazu. Uh, also a free thinker, more or less kind of just like leave the space entirely a few years ago. Uh, and like really he stopping. Completely left he completely, he completely left. He completely left, right? Left. Yeah. And like, and, and I don't know if he ever really got in a fight with them or not, but like the, the, what I've noticed is that there's this kind of like brain drain out of like the Bitcoin space. Because if you don't fit the mold, if you don't fit the, the chant of the cyber hornets, then like where do you fit, right? And it takes a, a decent amount of just... Um, a lack of critical thinking to be able to do that comfortably, right? Like no one, no one who likes to, who's intrinsically curious, perpetually curious, wants to explore things, uh, will find themselves like satisfied just like chanting the chant of like Bitcoin maxless. And so like, to me, like you were like one of the last people that did, no? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, I was one of the last rats off the sinking ship. Is the way I think about it. <laughs> Oof. Oh and I was like half drowned, you know, right. when, they, when they found me. And like um, you're the, the last independent thinker who like produces really informative, really in-depth, very well-researched content that people in the ecosystem associate loosely with Bitcoin, or more, maybe more than loosely, maybe maybe more tightly with Bitcoin. Oh, I but think like, a lot of people probably thought, Nick, that you were a Bitcoin maximalist. Right, yeah. Yeah, that was the problem. I probably should have done more to defray that. Like, um, I guess I wasn't clear enough maybe but Mm. yeah i certainly am not i uh, maybe we should define the term i you know i see it as someone that that thinks so there's like the narrow and the broad form one is like touching or investing or using any other blockchain isn't is just sinful maybe that's the broad form and then sort of like maybe the other one is like someone who only holds bitcoin um that's you know maybe that's the narrow form um like I pretty much mostly hold Bitcoin in my personal portfolio. Um, my main like exposure to things is through my funds, though, right? Obviously, that gives me the most leverage. And the funds invest in all kinds of stuff, mostly startups and all over the, all over the industry. I mean, like dozens of blockchains. My startup Coinmetrics, they run nodes like everywhere, every node. They run all the nodes. That was I did that before anybody knew who I was. So Coin Met- Metrics and Analytics, um, it basically an analytics company that investigates all of the blockchain. Every blockchain. I, yeah, I remember you guys were like doing in depth stuff with EOS. 
back in like 2017. Yeah, it was so annoying to run a Neos <laughs> mode, man. But like, like that thing began in 2016. I was in business school. I wanted to compare like Bitcoin to Ethereum, basically, and there was nowhere to do it. So from the beginning, from the beginning, I've been curious about other blockchains, right? Because I just want to know where's the economic activity happening? Where's the vibrancy? So that's, I'm a data-driven person. I love data, right? So like the fact that people thought it was some like extreme hardliner, it's like I was running these nodes, you know, like CM is like one of the only entities in the world that runs full archival nodes for all these blockchains. Some of these blockchains, uh, I won't name names, run life support because there's like three analytics firms that run the nodes, you know? So it's just crazy that, that people thought otherwise. I don't know. I, maybe I should have been more clear. Well, I think this is a fantastic lesson in just kind of what makes the crypto world tick a little bit. Like every single blockchain has a little bit of this, right? Like a little bit of tribalism, a little bit of identity, even down to the tokens. Uh, it just so happens that Bitcoiners got like a lot of it and it's kind of like starting to drown out everything that's not about Bitcoin. Um, and so just like the lesson here is that like, this is a little bit true in all communities, no matter what. Uh, so Nick, I'm sorry that uh, this this community came and descended upon you, but like knowing you, uh, that it's not really gonna, it's just gonna be sweat off your back at the end of the day. Well, first of all, I found out who my friends were, which is sure. very useful, right? Mm -hmm. So I know who's a snake, basically, and who's willing to throw their friend under the bus because uh, for a little dopamine rush. Second of all, like a lot more people respect me now. People that I respect respect me now for saying this. Third of all, I think Bitcoin maximalism is a genuinely like toxic, cancerous thing that harms Bitcoin. And to the extent I can harm that, I'm very happy to do my part. And I owe the world a debt, right? Because I uh, was uh, I wasn't ever a maximalist, but I was like definitely aggressive at times in defending Bitcoin. And uh, maybe that encouraged these people. I don't know. Uh, like the ultimately, these are financial assets. And yes, there's an underlying philosophy beneath Bitcoin. I've like done my best to describe it and so on. Um, but you know, there's more to life than Bitcoin. If someone has a more nuanced or mixed view or heterodox view, that they're not a bad person, right? They just have different views. And the the intellectual, like I've had core devs reach out to me and thank me for writing this, right? There's like an intellectually stilted environment holds everything back. People are afraid to discuss. Any idea, I mean, just look at the discussions of, um, you know, Peter Todd brought up the other day adding inflation into Bitcoin. I don't think that's a good idea, but that discussion was so incredibly heated. People couldn't handle that. Um, you're right. Bitcoin isn't the place people go for intellectually stimulating discussions. That's a shame. I want to reopen that. Well, there, there's also this conversation going around, like Hazu was definitely a part of this conversation. Many in the Ethereum camp are of like Bitcoin's long-term sustainability. And like, there's a number of different ways to fix Bitcoin's long-term sustainability, but they all start at the path of admitting that this is a problem. And I think that's what a lot of uh, you know cyber hornets will refuse to admit, right? Like the, the the issuance of Bitcoin runs out to zero. We don't really think that the transaction fees uh, can sustain that. You put out a tweet like uh, about ten days ago, seven days ago, and you said, "Since it's a bear market, maybe I won't be yelled at." Uh, made that part was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> now you know why they wanted to cancel my ass, right? Right. right. And you, you go. So, so this again is, is in response to the long-term plan of securing the Bitcoin blockchain. Some options: do nothing, 
Two, that's that's option one. Two, bust a 21 million hard cap and create a perpetual subsidy. Extremely contentious with like core thought of from Bitcoin. Uh, recycle ancient coins, saying 10 years into minor subsidy. I think implying that like any uh, Bitcoin that hasn't been moved on the Bitcoin blockchain in 10 years starts to become like uh, part of the issuance or the uh, subsidy for, for block rewards. Uh, and then the last option, creating a fee target by growing and contracting the block size. The point is, it's like there's a number of different, different ways to like think about long Bitcoin long-term sustainability. And if Bitcoin wants to get there, it has to start having these conversations. Nick, are you like optimistic that these conversations might actually start now that we're starting to see some like general defection from the Bitcoin hive mind? I think there could be a sea change here. Yeah, I am. Um, we could do a whole episode on that tweet, probably. Uh, probably. But yeah, I, I, a lot of people reached out to me and were like, yeah, I think something's changing around these parts. Um, because like the, the people holding the line here, they haven't really said anything new in, in years and years and years. And then the, the newcomers that are like the foot soldiers, they, they don't have ideas. They're just regurgitating things from like the sort of half dozen thought leaders. Um, so yeah, like let's bring back some dynamism to the conversation. Mm. I think it'll happen. Well, that is and going to be an interesting thing to look forward to in this bear market. And there's perhaps perhaps that we have a long bear market ahead of us to figure out some of these very hard questions. And then we also have some questions around around this bear market that we want to ask you, Nick, such as just like lessons that you learned in this 2021 bull market and like also questions about the shattered state of the crypto market today uh, <laughs> and like overall your thoughts on macro and regulatory. So we're going to get to all these questions and more right after we get back from some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. The Layer 2 era is upon us. Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem is growing every day, and we need Layer 2 bridges to be fast and efficient in order to live a Layer 2 life. Across is the fastest, cheapest, and most secure cross-chain bridge. With Across, you don't have to worry about high fees or long wait times. Assets are bridged and available for use almost instantaneously. Across's bridges are powered by UMA's optimistic oracle to securely transfer tokens between Layer 2s and Ethereum. Across's critical ecosystem infrastructure and Across V2 has just launched. Their new version focuses on higher capital efficiency, layer two to layer two transfers, and a brand new chain with Polygon, all while prioritizing high security and low fees. You can be a part of Across's story by joining their Discord and using Across for all of your layer two transferring needs. So go to across.to to quickly and securely bridge your assets between Ethereum, Optimism, Polygon, Arbitrum, or Boba networks. MakerDAO is the OG DeFi protocol, the first DeFi protocol to ever exist, even before we called it DeFi. MakerDAO produces DAI, the industry's most battle-tested and resilient stablecoin. Using Maker, you don't need to sell your collateral if you need liquidity. Instead, you can spin up a Maker vault and use your collateral to mint DAI directly. With Maker, the power to mint new money is in your hands. And there's something new in the MakerDAO ecosystem. Every time a new MakerDAO is opened, the owner can claim a POAP, which contributes funds to One Tree Planted, an organization with ongoing global global reforestation efforts, creating a world where digital participation and the health of our environment can live side by side. Soon, Maker will be present on all chains and layer twos, bringing the biggest and best DeFi credit facility to everywhere there is DeFi. So follow Maker on Twitter, at MakerDAO, and learn from the oldest and most resilient DAO in existence. RocketPool is your decentralized Ethereum staking protocol. You can stake your ETH in RocketPool and get our ETH in return, allowing you to stake your ETH and use it in DeFi at the same time. You can get 4% on your ETH by staking it with RocketPool, but you can get even more by running a node. RocketPool is the only staking provider that allows anyone to permissionlessly join their network of validating Ethereum nodes. Setting up your RocketPool node is easier than running a node solo, and you only need 16 ETH to get started. You get an extra 15% staking commission on the pooled ETH that uses your 
your node to stake. You also get RPL token rewards on top. So if you're bullish e-staking, you can boost your yield by adding your node to the decentralized rocket pool network, which currently has over 1,000 independent node operators. It's yield farming, but with Ethereum nodes. You can get started at rocketpool.net, and you can also join the Rocket Pool community in their Discord. You can find me hanging out there sometimes in the chat, so I'll see you there. All right, guys, we are back with Nick Carter, the um, recent lever of the Bitcoin maximalist <laughs> religion. Maybe we'll say that. Um, but Nick, you've got a lot of perspective on bear and bull markets and macro and crypto banks and everything. And in, in the second part of this, we just want to get your take on some of these things. But but first, let me, let me just kind of check in with you. Like, So we're in a bear market. I think that is uh, blatantly obvious, confirmed, and Bitcoin's off 70%. I mean, Ether is getting close to 80%, if not surpassing 80%, down to like triple digits. Um, hard to believe. How are you feeling about things? Like, what's 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 your vibe right now in this uh, in this bear market? Well, I'm in a relatively lucky position because you know our timing was really good with our third fund raise, and most of the capital that I will have deployed to date across the three funds is lays ahead of me, right? So, mm. um, if you just wait it that way, the economic opportunity looks amazing right now. I mean, so you raised during the bull market and deployed during the, the bear. end of the bull market. Yeah, that's always the goal. That was what we did with our first fund as well. And it was it, it worked perfectly. Uh, you can't really plan for these things. But yeah, your entry price matters. Your vintage matters a lot. And, um, you know, maybe things could grind down for another three years. So who knows? But I feel really, really great about valuations like and this is all like selfish. This isn't necessarily stuff that generalizes, but you know, in terms of the pendulum, the dynamics between founders and, and investors, things are definitely swinging back in favor of investors, which is refreshing. <laughs> um, so I feel good. Uh, obviously, it's going to be a long road. Like, um, you know, we're in this for, for the long game. So companies who invest in today might, those investments might be realized in eight to 10 years. Um, but yeah, I, I think the macro is, is troubling. Like, we're definitely headed for recession. The Fed, I believe, acted far too aggressively in a panicked way, too late. They uh, eased for too long and they waited to tighten until it was too late. Uh, there's basically no precedent uh, for tightening into a recession. Um, so, like, we'll see if they really stay committed to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a very, very, like, people talk about the macro. The macro is very, very, very challenging. Um, you know, it's hard to ignore. It affects everything. The best chart I found explaining actually Bitcoin price action is just the change year over year in global M2 money supply. So that's just a proxy for the amount of liquidity sloshing around. And that basically varies uh, really closely with the price of Bitcoin. So obviously money supply is shrinking right now, basically, right? You, you know, you, you, uh, you tighten, uh, you, you raise interest rates. Uh, that basically shrinks the amount of liquidity floating around. Uh, so until that reverses, I'd you know have a hard time seeing things get better. The other thing I'll say is like I'm seeing a lot of VCs, like generalist VCs, be like, yeah, if this is anything like 2008, then you know you're gonna have to do this and that. It's like, well, you know, the world's been around for much longer than uh, you know 20 years, and um, this isn't necessarily 2008. 2008 things recovered really quickly because we got QE, right? Things rocketed off the bottom. Uh, so it was like, actually, people say the Great Recession. For financial assets, it was like nothing. Housing prices like fell a little bit and then recovered. Stocks rocketed off the bottom. Um, what about 1929, you know? 
What about uh, the 30s with hyperinflation? What about post-war monetary repression? What about the 70s with stagflation? There's a lot of other things you could look at as your historical analogs. Just because we haven't ourselves lived through them doesn't mean we're not going to. And if you look at the level of debt in the system, sovereign debt, um, just the amount of leverage that's been built up, uh, like we, there's going to be a dramatic and difficult time ahead of us. We are going to have to deal with monetary repression here, which is uh, high inflation, uh, low interest rates. Um, and yeah, it looks like we're in for stagflation. Uh, the Fed doesn't have any really firepower here, right? You know, rates are, are still pretty low. Um, so, you know, like I would encourage people to look beyond just like the most recent data point, 2008. I would actually look further back in history for, for parallels. So, um, Nick, what, what's your take on this? Because people in crypto really haven't seen, like crypto as an asset class hasn't seen a macro climate like this at all, right? I mean, crypto wasn't even around 2008 when that um, you know, financial bomb went off. Um, so what what do you expect here? What do you think could happen, right? So crypto people are very much used to like these four-year cycles. So I, I um, tweeted out, I think yesterday, I was like, hey, uh, how long will the bear market last? And I did like just a very informal Twitter survey of like one year, two years, three to four years, or five plus years. 8% of people thought it was one or two years. So like everyone <laughs> is still in this, Oh, we're in crypto, yeah. of course, it recovers. It, it right. crashes every every you know two three years, and then mm -hmm. it comes back every every two three years. Expect uh, to be served a bull market on a golden platter in two years. Exactly. Right. Wait, yeah. Do you think that's the case, or do you think that this time things could be different given the macro? And like, if if the macro is more at play here, how long do you think this could take to heal? I don't think that there's any guarantee that some of these assets would ever recover their prior highs. I mean, this is the same case last time, right? You know, you have churn, right? So, yeah, maybe the index does recover its prior high, but some assets just go to zero. So there's always churn. So it's not necessarily the case that if you hold, like, Feathercoin and Peercoin and, you know, 20, they hit their peaks and whenever it was, you're not making your, like, they're not hitting their peak again in 2020 or 2021. Um, so you have to be mindful of that. So you have to be dynamic. Um I don't think there's any mathematical requirement that, you know, it's like a two, three or four year cycle. I, I think the four year cycle thing is illusory and that's built on sort of two or three data points. Uh, we've also been, uh, uh, you know, against the backdrop of almost endless QE and really loose liquidity, the loosest conditions in living memory over the last 10 years. Um, that's changing, right? There's like a fundamental policy change. Uh, we're moving into we're 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 looking at generational lows in the sort of commodities to financial assets ratio. It looks like commodities are going to be much more important than financial assets going forward. Crypto is in the category of financial assets, right? So it could just be that there's sort of like structurally less interest in the asset class on a go forward basis. Like what really matters in the world today? Like we live very insulated lives. What really matters is like can we pull oil and gas out of the ground? efficiently and create fertilizer and grow food and keep the lights on there's going to be like large portions of the globe where the answer to that is no so sort of you know i would expect more of society's resources to go in that direction is like keeping people alive and keeping the lights on you know things like that you know pulling uh, nickel and tin out of the ground and building batteries for the sort of the renewable transition stuff like that so not to be too depressing guys <laughs> well i was gonna say but like so all all of that's true 
And yet at the same time, we have very challenging macro conditions where the Fed probably has to raise rates, I don't know, four or 5%, who knows, got to curtail inflation, you know, some way, but um, the, the, the U.S. is in such a worse place. I mean, you're talking about the 1970s. I mean, our debt to GDP is much worse than the 1970s. It's gr- greater than even the post-World uh, War II years. So we've got that as a challenging backdrop. But like, isn't that the promise of crypto? I mean, you know, in, the, in these events where we have the, the fiat monetary supply completely debasing, which is what you have to expect regardless of any other, you know, condition over the next 10 years is, is more fiat debasement. Isn't that where crypto is supposed to shine? Is there some silver lining there, Nick? Yeah, it's, I have contradictory ideas in my head. Um, you know, I wish I could go back to being a toxie maxi where like everything's very simple, you know, <laughs> uh, not to pile on. I think I've trashed them enough. Um, but yeah, on the one hand, you know, the more that major fiats debase themselves, I think that's good for your, um, your, you know, your crypto assets, although not ex- like not every cryptocurrency is competing with fiat currency, right? Like, so like, let's just say from a big, I would say Ethereum is really more a function of like the things that are built on top of Ethereum. And it's, it's got its own like kind of pretty, obviously it does have a beta to, you know, like liquidity and things like that. But it's also more like, can you do a lot of transactions and burn a lot of ether and, you know, things like that. Um, Bitcoin, I would say, you know, I would expect it to do well as you have sovereign currencies start to inflate. And in the 30s, after World War One and an attempted return and a failed return to the gold standard, the 20s and 30s, um, you had hyperinflation in the developed world, right? Germany was the most developed industrial nation in the world. Um, so when you have a massive overhang from like having fought a war or something like that, you get inflation. In the 40s, 50s, the world had fought another war. You got um, significant inflation, like just in the US case study, where they had to reset. The 40s is the situation I would say is really analogous in the US. Significant inflation to reset the debt. Um, and you'd hyperinflation in certain European countries. So um, are conditions primed such that sovereign currencies are going to be um, really debased aggressively in the next decade? 100% yes, I think so. Um, doesn't mean it could be an extremely bumpy road. Also, yes, it is bumpy. Um, are we kind of reliant on the Fed to basically pivot and stop hiking? Um, also, yes, right? I think they're going to quell inflation for now. We're actually looking at things rolling over. If you look at basically any indicator you want, um, inflation is coming down sort of for now. Uh, is inflation solved? I don't think so. What are the key drivers of inflation? Energy is becoming harder to pull out of the ground. We don't have as much of it. We haven't invested in it. Energy is everything, basically. Um, the, no one trusts each other globally anymore. There's a war on. Uh, but also, like, tensions are rising with China. We're, like, have less globalization. That's going to make things more expensive, too. Are those two... And then we're also trying to do this green transition, which is very, very expensive. We'll see if we're able to do that. Um, you know, are those factors solved by the Fed hiking rates? Certainly not. So there's, like, kind of fundamental inflationary factors, I think, here. So, yeah, I do think that you're, like, independent or, like, algorithmic or, like, code-based monetary systems do look better by contrast. 
Nick, um, I know you've been, been a fan and probably still are of the uh, concept of uh, f- like free banking, right? Um, particularly around like um, Bitcoin banks. Uh, and like more recently as part of this, this cycle, uh, maybe um, exclusive, we haven't seen this in previous cycles, we've actually had some crypto banks being brought low and being brought down. So Celsius, of course, um, looks completely insolvent. Uh, not even sure if hopefully hopefully depositors are a- able to get some some funds uh, out of this at some point. But things are not looking good at this point. BlockFi, uh, as well, not completely insolvent, but in uh, has some similarities. Of course, they're still allowing withdrawals and and that sort of thing. But they've definitely had a tough time of it through this bear market as a result of you know, lens going bad to the three hours capital of the world. What do you think about this concept of free banking? Has it really like taken a hit? Or do you think this is a, you know, a healthy cleansing process? Like what should happen in, in the free market when uh, banks make bad decisions is they should go out of business and, you know, equity holders should be wiped out. What's your take now? Yeah, it's kind of one of those things that did take me by surprise was the level of, I guess you kind of expect interrelatedness you do expect contagions, um, especially when they're all lending to the same borrowers. Um, I, I didn't expect the three arrows thing to occur. I mean, I didn't really have knowledge of their operation, um, but it was shocking. And yeah, I've been disappointed. I mean, the, if you look at the historical free banking eras in places like Scotland or uh, Canada or Switzerland or Sweden, those are sort of the major case studies. They, we had one in the U.S., but it wasn't true free banking. Um, those were very stable systems. They, um, didn't, they weren't characterized by panics and they didn't have lenders of last resort. Um, it's just that, uh, the expansion of credit was limited by, uh, the nature of the system, by the kind of structure and the incentives were in place. In our case, in sort of like the crypto free banking era of 2017 to now, credit was wildly overexpanded, um, ended up you know, investments were made in these like Ponzi-like things, which collapsed. And the consequence of this was just like massive holes in everyone's balance sheet and insolvencies and liquidity crises runs on the bank. And when all is said and done, I mean, I don't think we've seen the extent of this thing so far. I'm just finding out about new lenders that I'd never heard of that are like magically insolvent. So it's like, God, I wish I hadn't heard about you for the first time knowing that now there's like some sort of like liquidity crisis. Um, but yeah, I, I think when it's all said and done, there's going to be massive consolidation. There's going to be a small handful of these lenders, um, you know, maybe fewer than half a dozen. They might all be the major exchanges, basically. Are, are you uh, still like DCG. a believer in the concept or do you think the, the concept in, uh, has uh, taken a hit? Or what sort of reforms would you like to see in kind of like crypto banking, free banking to make it um, a bit more, you know, sustainable? Um, I think you know p- part of what caught me by surprise is not only like the everyone lending to like the three hours capital of of the world and and uh, how bad of shape they they were actually in it turned out, but I also had um, partially in the crypto banking side, especially with like you know, the block fives of the world, a false sense of security maybe because yeah. these loans are collateralized loans. So what could possibly go wrong? But like they were collateralized by assets that were trading off peg and GDBC, and you know you kind of see in the yeah. details that that things were um, not as uh, you clean as they seen. They seem, but the concept of free banking—are you still a believer? Or what kind of reform should we be making? Oh, I mean, like the yeah, completely. I I do believe in it. I don't think this episode in crypto 
discredits the sort of overall idea, which is just that you can have a functional banking system without a central bank, right? That's the idea. Uh, and without real oversight from the state. Um, what reforms would I like to see? I mean, I, I w so a lot of people use this as an opportunity to be like, oh, DeFi is better. But they're kind of doing a different thing. You know, like th this, these are like more wrapped in a legal uh, structure. Um, and some of them were fully collateralized, some under collateralized. Um, but there's like a sort of default process and like it's wrapped in orderly legal wrapper, whereas like the, you know, Aves and compounds of the world, that's, it's kind of like a different thing. It's, you know, you're borrowing against like highly liquid assets. Um, so I wouldn't, I mean, I do think that DeFi looks well, looks like it's done well, comparatively speaking. What I would be interested to see would be more of more transparency. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I have a little debate in my head, which is, do you actually want that much transparency when it comes to banking? So let's say you're going to go put some money in the bank, right? They don't hold on to the money. They go and deploy it into a bunch of small business loans or mortgages or whatever. And so let's say what you were able to do would be to look at the mortgage portfolio, which you can't, right? You can't go to your bank and be like, where are you putting the money? Um, but let's say you were be able to, you were able to go and get an itemized look at their mortgage portfolio. You'd probably be horrified. You'd be like, oh, so you're lending, you know, to like a stripper and like an OnlyFans <laughs> model and like <laughs> you're lending to like such and such. It's like, I'm, never mind. Somebody in crypto? Safe. My God. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, you actually kind of want there to be some opacity, I would say, to build credibility. There's like an interesting blog post about this. Um and which I kind of believe, but at the same time, for the sake of repairing people's confidence here, I like the model of um, some of these under collateralized DeFi lenders that do have kind of institutionalization built in and where you can see who the counterparties are. So you put some funds in a pool and then there's like a delegate or some entity that administers it. They do real underwriting, they lend, and then, you know, it is actually transparent where the funds are going. That's not foolproof. It doesn't mean there's never going to be defaults, but at least sort of then you have a better idea of the portfolio and maybe you can sort of assess it better. So I, I think that would be like an interesting... And because, you know, the problem is you have certain big counterparties that borrow from everyone and maybe they're pledging collateral many times over, right? You know, maybe the, the lenders aren't talking to each other, right? So there's, I think there's some common sense reforms you can see there. I worry that you know, regulators just going to come and like nuke the whole space. Basically. Well, what do you think about this? So um, there was a recent interview you did in For Forbes and they quoted you as um, Nick Carter expects regulatory response to recent carnage to be harsh, aggressive and warranted. Maybe at the time <laughs> you were talking about like um, Terra UST or mm. something like that. And it's a different context. But um, what do you think about this harsh, harsh, aggressive and maybe warranted? Do you think that um, we've been talking a lot about sins and, and sinners in this in this episode? Do you think that you know yeah, regulators should make the crypto industry pay for their sins? Oh, we're sinners, yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> Whenever there's like a financial crisis, um, you get regulation, it's like clockwork, basically, because that's when there's the popular support for regulation. Before, when everyone was making money, we didn't want regulation. Now that everybody's lost money, it's like, oh yeah, maybe this regulation thing makes sense. So I think if you asked a bunch of crypto people, they'd probably be like, yeah, kind of sympathetic here. Um, let's uh, let's impose some common sense regulation. So, yeah, I, I do think that, that, that we'll get something in, in the U.S. here.
Um, so Nick, I know, uh, we're at about time, but you know, want to finish with maybe something that's, um, a bit more optimistic because, um, you've just, you decided to stay in crypto during the last, you know, bear cycle. Uh, and, um, I'm assuming you're, you're deciding to stay in crypto for this bear (laughs) cycle as well. Uh, there must be a reason for this. All right. Like why should people stay in crypto? Why are you staying in crypto? What, what should we expect on the other side of this bear market? What makes you optimistic? Well, it's the most exciting market in the world. I mean, it moves the fastest. It's the most active, you know, information gets priced in. It's 24-7. Like, how could the, I don't know, man. This is just like so turbocharged. It's fun. Um, even when it's like, feels like you're, you know, being hit with an artillery strike or something. Like all your like friends and businesses are just like blowing up and, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, obviously I believe in what's going on. I mean, like, look, Bitcoin is worth one twentieth of the value of gold. I think that's, I think it's terminal values, obviously way higher than that. Uh, stable coins, I think we're going to see crypto dollarization. I think that's going to be good, right? I think we're going to see a ton of these sovereign currencies. I think in emerging markets, I think you're going to see a ton of these currencies wiped out. And uh, I'm not like a dollar enthusiast, but the dollar is just going to basically destroy these things on crypto rails and that's going to be good because it means that regular savers can adopt this they can adopt the currency of their choice and protect themselves so i think the the effect is that the fact that crypto infrastructure exists is going to bring about the failure of these sovereign currencies faster than it would have otherwise occurred so it's going to be like hyper capitalism you know things just happen faster everything's happening faster now Um, i think DeFi is a powerful and important thing I think there's been a structural failure in this country to create credit. Credit's become very politicized, uh, and and so have financial rails generally, but especially credit. Um, after Dodd Frank, um, you know, small banks got crushed um, as interest rates fell as well, um, as it became much harder to be a financial institution. Small banks lend to small businesses. There's just a structural paucity of credit now, and it's a very political thing who gets access to credit. Now it's sort of like who has access to these like government stimulus programs, basically. I think that's a terrible situation. That's not a market-based situation. I'd love to see DeFi fill that gap and, uh, and you know, actually, you know, make credit equitable and abundant once again. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a huge amount of positive stuff here. A lot of DeFi, I've been very critical of DeFi. I mean, I've written a few things. I think there's a lot of bad ideas that need to be eliminated, uh, the circularity, certainly the Ponzi structures that seem to appear everywhere. And I think they will because these financial conditions are tight and and maybe Ponzi's aren't going to work in our sort of brave new world here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I still think fundamentally what we're building is an incredibly important thing. Uh, nothing about that's changed. And uh, there's going to be a lot of chaos out there in, in the real world. Uh, and it's important that we build structures that actually work and, and work for people and, and are neutral and, and are predictable and, and do what they say they do. Well, I'm sure you would agree, Nick, the best time to be in the space and to do those things is during the bear market. That's when uh, the most signal comes through and the best opportunities reveal themselves. Uh, so um, I'm glad you're, you're, you're sticking true uh, during this bear market and um, you know, glad, glad that you're on the other side of the cyber hornet attack. Uh, Nick Carter no longer never was a Bitcoin maxi and you know how I knew this because it's like your fifth time on Bankless we don't get many Bitcoin maximalists <laughs> yeah. coming on Bankless anyway so Nick it's I, been a pleasure by the way I've, I've, I've been asked to tell you my co-host my on the brink co-host Matt Walsh he's a he's 
he told me he's the largest holder of the bankless token. I oh my god! <laughs> wow! That's, wow! It's pretty bullish. Tell, tell him we're not going to let him down. <laughs> so he says that at least one of you has to return the favor and reciprocate and do our show. You know um, we're big fans of. Oh my um, god! On so the brink. you're officially invited onto the did, brink. Wow. Did you know the, the weekly deal. roundup on the brink was the inspiration for the Bankless weekly roll-up? Yeah, we called it a roll-up uh, instead of a roundup. I, oh, my that's God. That's clever. a blatant copy, David. <laughs> that's clever. No, that's okay. We just that's ethereumed okay. your we, Bitcoin. Sorry, Nick. We celebrate innovation. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But anyway, so Matt's going to be Matt. Matt, would, he made sure that I asked. That's so, awesome. Well, we'll yeah. be there for sure. Absolutely. Um, Bankless listeners, go catch us on, on the brink. We'll be there in the future. Uh, we'll include some links in the show notes to the On the Brink podcast as well. So you go subscribe to that. As always, none of this has been financial advice. Bitcoin and ETH are super risky. So are the communities and cultures around them, apparently. As is DeFi, <laughs> you could definitely lose what you put in. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. 